Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,286 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages that I've delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 25th and final message in our series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, Equipped to Do His Will. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. So today we conclude our extended series of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Now last week we compared this shifting world with a collection of changeless truths concerning Jesus and the plan and purpose of God. And this week is our final message in the study of Hebrews. It's been 25 weeks worth that we've been looking at this book. And what we've learned through these 25 weeks should allow us now to be equipped to do his will. So let's read Hebrews 18, or 13, verses 18 through 25. It's on page 1879 of your pew Bibles. So follow along as I read, and this section is titled, Benediction and Final Greetings, starting with verse 18. Pray for us. We are sure that you have, we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that, you may be re- that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of our, the sheep, he's equipped you with everything good for doing his will. And may you work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with the words of exhortation. In fact, I've written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send their greetings. Grace be with you all. Now, throughout this book of Hebrews, the author's tone has been relatively formal and sometimes even detached, you might say. At times, the book reads more like a theological treatise, but other times it's like a sermon that could be preached to any group of believers in Christ. But like a sermon is concluding verses of the book, we catch a glimpse of the author's personal relationship with his audience that he's writing to. He's no mere third-hand knowledge of these people. He happens to hear their struggles and throws in his two cents worth. No, he knows them personally. And even though we don't, in this 21st century, know who for sure the author was of the book of Hebrews, the original recipients obviously knew him well. In verses 18 through 25, the writer shares a personal prayer request, even asking that he'd be able to see his beloved audience once again. Then he prays for them that they would be equipped to do Christ's will. And finally, he encourages them once more to heed the words that he has written to them during this book. And before or after that, he extends a few final comments and greetings. And these words show this anonymous author's heartbeat for his audience, for these Hebrews that have been suffering persecution. As we look more deeply into verses 18 and 19, We see in our overly individualistic approach to our Christian life, especially here in America, because we love our individualism, our independence, 
And sometimes we might think when someone asks us for prayer, we might assume that something's wrong with them. In the back of our minds, we might think, well, why don't they just pray for themselves? However, as we grow and mature in our faith, we realize that praying for one another is one of the core tenets of the Church of Christ, the body of Christ. We as believers together as one family. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, pray for each other. And the Apostle Paul was not ashamed in several of his letters to the churches in the Middle East there. One in Thessalonians, he says, pray for us. And they knew the abundant living of, as a Christian and the fruitful Christian ministry is empowered by mature Christians praying for one another. In these first two verses here in our passage today, the author of Hebrews asks his audience to pray for him. Though they knew that he knew in his ministry and his ministry partners, they had a clear conscience as they wrote this letter to them that they were following the precepts that they wrote about. He knew that the warnings that he extended to these recipients, though, concerning their backsliding and falling away from the truth, also applied to them as believers. And that any one of us, no matter how mature in our faith is, we can have that tendency to slip back away from God. And without this mutual prayer support of fellow believers, the author could turn his attention away from Christ and this superiority for pressing on. And because of this, he desired to keep his conscience clear and continue to conduct himself, as it says in verse 18, honorably in every way. He also shared with his audience a more specific and personal prayer. He said so in verse 19, so that I may be restored to you soon. That means that I might be able to have a chance to visit you once again. Indicating that he had been with them in the past. Now, we don't know the specific circumstances that kept him away at this point in time. Perhaps he was just busy with his ministry and hadn't had an opportunity to break away and go visit these group of Hebrews believers. Perhaps he was suffering persecution and hardships that delayed his return visit. Perhaps maybe he was even in prison like Timothy and the Apostle Paul. But whatever the case, though, he had absolute confidence in the power of prayer. Specifically, that the, the church would be coming together with him before the throne of God. As we look at verses 20 and 21, he jots down in his closing remarks to the Jewish believers, his brothers and sisters in Christ, the writer turns his eyes toward heaven and he proclaims a benediction culminating with a doxology. These are big words, but they're incorporated within this passage today. This personal prayer of God on behalf of the readers climaxes with the word of praise to God, uttered in confidence that his prayer would be answered. He was confident that by bringing his prayers before God, that he would answer his prayers. And we should remember the specific recipients, those who originally read this letter, those Jewish believers, those Jewish Christians, were feeling that full weight of oppression the repercussions that was wrapped up in the decisions to follow the, the Jesus as a Messiah. They had been cut off from their former faith community. Most of them probably were prohibited of going back into the synagogue to worship. They were outcasts. And maybe even their families, their personal families, their blood relatives had disowned them at this point. 
They probably long for that predictability and the emotional comfort afforded by those old rites and rituals that were, they were so used to that they'd grown up with. But now they suffer persecution, prompting them to wonder whether all this turmoil that they were going through was really worth it, or maybe they should just go back to their old traditions. So when the author opens a benediction by referring to the God of peace, the audience would have recalled that sweet, refreshing peace, that breeze of the Hebrew word shalom. One writer said about the Jewish concept of shalom, it's meant completeness, wholeness, harmony, fulfillment. These are all close to the meaning of shalom. Implicit in shalom is the idea of an unimpaired relationship with others and the fulfillment of one's undertakings. You felt complete. You felt whole with the peace of shalom. God alone is able to grant this kind of wholeness to us, this healing mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and socially. They needed this, these beaten up Hebrews, these recipients of the letter of Hebrews. Now, the following phrase turns our focus once again to the central theme of the book, which is the superior person in the work of Jesus Christ, in verse 20. And regarding the superior person of Christ, this God-man, it says, Jesus, our Lord, he's our great shepherd of the sheep. Now, this image of Christ as a shepherd comes to us from that familiar passage in Psalm 23, where the Lord, our God, is our shepherd. He provides for his sheep. He nourishes and refreshes his sheep. He protects them from their enemies. In this application between Jesus as our Lord and as our great shepherd is that strong final affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. He was fully man, but he was also fully God. Now, regarding the superior work of Christ, the author reviews the central tenets of the gospel. The gospel of salvation, it comes, as verse 20 says, through the blood of the eternal covenant. And not only did his blood suffice to pay for the sin to usher in this new covenant that would never pass away, unlike the tabernacle and all its rituals that did pass away, his resurrection from the dead means that we are ever alive forevermore. Before the throne, we can boldly approach God to grant us peace and strength to accomplish his will in our lives. And this concept of the covenant of the Holy Spirit was also written in verse 21, to equip you with everything good for doing his will and may his work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and glory forever. Amen. And this is similar to the thoughts that Paul wrote about in several of his letters. One in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For God is working in you, giving you the desires and the power to do what pleases him. And Peter also reiterates this in this part of the passage I read this morning. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us, to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And this word in this verse 21, equipped, is a Hebrew word, katartizo, which means to prepare for a specific purpose, to make, to create, to outfit 
for a specific purpose of God. Commentator Leon Morris notes that this verb is often used for mending what was broken or torn. And some see it as a reference of putting right what was amiss in the spiritual lives of the readers. It was a prayer that God would put everything right and quiet in his place. But also in the context, perhaps the meaning supplying you what you need in order to fulfill your Christian life. And both these ideas are in view here. If some of the Hebrews believers had been starting to backslide back into the old practices of Judaism to a state that they were once fresh with Christ, the author's prayer would be to able to restore them to their original standing in Christ. Now, as others lacked anything needed to carry out God's purpose, his will more efficiently and effectively, this prayer would be that God would provide them everything that they lacked. As we move on to verses 22 through 25, after this prayer request and benediction of blessing and praise, the author wraps up this monumental testimony to the superiority of Christ with three final commands. And we see the heart of this anonymous writer and his earnest desire for the good of his audience, his concern for his fellow believers as fellow laborers in Christ, and his genuine love for the body of Christ. Here, too, we ourselves bid farewell to this great unknown author who, ironically, over the last 25 weeks that we've studied, we have come to know quite well through his inspired and inspiring words. If you look at your bulletin insert today, on the side it says, equipped to do his will. Let's look more deeply into these three parting commands that the author of Hebrews gave to this group of troubled and Christians who were in tribulation that were being scorned by not only the Jewish sect, but also by the Roman government. The first parting command exhorts the readers to bear with my word of exhortation in verse 22. Now, these words are often spoke, or not spoken with a scolding finger as somewhat in the past chapters that were, or with some sort of stern scrowl. Instead, the author addresses the recipients with a warm embrace. He says, my brothers and sisters, and he urges them to bear with my word of exhortation. That means, that is a letter to the Hebrews. He says, bear with what I've written to you. And the word urge here is parakleilo, and it's a word of gentle encouragement. Again, Leon Morris notes, the letter has its share of rebukes and stern warnings, this letter of Hebrews, and the writer now softens its impact with a little bit of a less stern appeal. The writer's deep desire for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ was not merely for them to close this letter that they've read now and check it off their read through the Bible in a year list. No. He wants these two deep truths to be planted in their hearts, to bear with them. And the teaching that he had given them over these 13 chapters. And the Greek word for bear with me is anachromia. And it's an interesting word choice here. It means to endure, to bear with, or to even put up with. Almost in the sense of tolerating something that's not real comfortable for you frustrating or irritating to you. The author knows that his letter is a stinging warning and it has been intricately constructed with biblical, theological, and logical arguments. And it doesn't make for an easy read. Some of the chapters we went through was a little di difficult to digest for us. 
However, he had confidence that the recipients could take it in, and upon hearing it and heeding it and applying it to their lives, then it could change their lives and keep them strong as they go through tribulations and trials. And he adds a line that indicates that he could have even written much more. And we think the book of Hebrews was a little long going through it for 25 weeks. He says, I could have written so much more. He says, that I've only written to you briefly what I wanted to share. It was the Reader Digest conversion of what he really wanted to share with them. And the second parting command tells his audience to take notice of the people of God. He says, don't cloister yourself just among your own fellowship here. Specifically, the Paul refers to Paul's protege, Timothy. Now, Paul called Timothy my true son in the faith in 1 Timothy chapter 1-2. He was a close friend of the author of Hebrews, a fellow laborer in the ministry. The author knew that Timothy had recently been released from prison. Now, it doesn't tell us in anywhere else in Scripture that Timothy was in prison, but it indicates here that he was, at least for a period of time. And he joined, he wanted Timothy to join him so he could return and visit these believers that were going under this persecution. And he says, I want you to know, and it's a command that's translated from the word to know something very distinctly. The implication is that just as the author kept tabs on the whereabouts and the conditions of their, not only this group of Hebrews that he was writing to, but also to other ministers in the faith, such as Timothy. He, wanted to, he knew there were, their whereabouts were. His friend and fellow worker, Timothy, and his audience was encouraged to do the same. He says, just don't cloister yourself to focus on your trials and tribulations, but also be aware of what others are going through outside of your little community of believers. Keep up with the ministry partners, the partners and missionaries, as well as all the circumstances and situations that they find themselves in outside your own fellowship. That's one reason why we're having an outreach Sunday next week, bringing Jeff and Candy in to share their ministry as we're part of that ministry in order to share what they're doing for the gospel of Christ. This command was meant to draw their attention to the Hebrew believers from their narrow confines of their close-knit community there in Jerusalem and its struggles to a broader sense of tragedies and triumphs of the Christians and the world around them. Let us think of those that are going through persecution in China, in Ukraine, in Russia, in Israel, in Palestine. What are those believers going through themselves. Let us be cognizant of that fact. Let us pray for them as they go through struggles that we, Lord willing, will never experience here in America. And the third parting command encourages this church to express and accept their, his greetings. He begins with an imperative. He says, greet all the leaders and all the Lord's people, of all the Lord's people. But then he ends with an indicative those from Italy send their greetings. So it gives us an insight of where this author is located right now. He must have been in Italy because he says, all the fellow believers here in Italy send you their greetings as we greet all of you. The same Greek word is used in both cases between the imperative and the indicative here. And it's the word as pazo mei. 
And it's a word that means to encourage in hospitable recognition of one another. Not only to recognize them, but be encouraged with hospitality, that recognition of the other brothers and sisters that are going through other trials and temptations in their lives. It illustrates the nature of an earthly Christian fellowship. It extended beyond just the local nuclear family there to the local churches, the leaders, and all believers to include an extended family of the believers worldwide. And that's what we're to do. Other congregations that are spread throughout the world, those are struggling under persecution in the countries that will never know that type of persecution. Other congregates spread throughout the world. They embraced each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. They encouraged and supported and prayed for one another, both here locally and then universally, and let us do the same. These mutual, intimate greetings between far-flung believers, members of the family of God, are genuine, sincere, and more natural than any manufactured association or denominations could try to piece together. We are part of God's family, God's universal family worldwide, the church, in every situation. They may not look like us. They may not act like us. They may not worship the same way we do. They may not study God's word exactly the same way we do, but they're part of God's body of Christ. And we are to reach out in love to them. So after these three final commands, the author concludes with a short farewell. But he doesn't end on a negative note. As much of the book of Hebrews or the letter of Hebrews was somewhat stern in teaching these believers, he doesn't repeat his sharp warnings about being aware of a hard heart, nor does he remind them of the hard teachings of, don't forget about Melchizedek. Instead, he ends with a simple but powerful power, prayer of grace. He says, grace be with you all. As that well-known hymn, at least well-known to me, grace is greater than all our sins, it starts out with, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Then the refrain says, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. Then it ends with this refrain. It says, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? That's the type of grace that the author is talking about here. So what's our application today of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 through 25? It's on the other side of your bulletin insert. We want to look at some practical conclusions. The letter of Hebrews is intricately constructed. It's part of the Old Testament Biblical interpretation, the theology pointing to the superior person and work of Jesus Christ. He is over everything and everyone. We can invest more than 25 weeks in this book of Hebrews and really dig in deeper in analyzing its arguments, digging deep into its doctrines, exploring its mysteries of this book. However, in our study, we must never forget that it was not written simply to educate us, but to edify us, 
for our edification. It was not simply written to inform us, but it was written to transform us. Reflecting on the theme, the message, and the goal of the book of Hebrews, let us consider three practical applications as we say farewell to this epic book. The first one is the theme of Hebrews. And the theme is the superiority of Christ. The author has emphasized the superiority of Christ in every way and in every realm. He is superior in his person because he is not merely a good man, he is a God-man. He is more significant than any other person who has ever gone before or whoever will come after. He is superior in his work as our high priest, by which he offered himself as that perfect sacrifice for sin, who rose again from the dead to intercede for us before the throne of grace. He is superior in his work of empowering us and motivating us to press on in faith, hope, and love. But for Hebrews to transform us, the superiority of Christ needs to take hold of us from within. We need to trust him as the God-man. We need to embrace him as our soul sacrifice, and we need to draw near to him as our high priest. We must add to this model of grace and mercy our relationship with the family and friends and those outside our church. We need to prevent us from drifting away, and we must return our focus to Christ alone. Can you honestly claim that Christ occupies the preeminent place in your life? Is he superior to all other priorities, people, and things? If not, let me urge you, as I'm urging myself, to once again draw back to him. One way that we could do this is slowly reading through the Gospels of Mark or John, perhaps in a translation that you don't use very often or have never read. Let the words of his life, his words and example, inspire us and transform us again. And the second practical conclusion of the book of Hebrews is, what is the message? The message is the practicality of Christianity. Hebrews may delve deeply into the riches of the theological truths and reach broadly to the truths, the treatment of biblical passages. But if we merely stand in awe and say, well, that was an amazing book. It had some deep theological truths in it. Well, I've missed what the author wanted us to know. Hebrews beckons us to a life of trusting and obeying our Lord Jesus Christ every moment of every day until the end of our lives. With each step that we take, we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. When we stumble and fall, and we will, we need to turn to him for forgiveness. When we falter and we become weak in our faith, which we will at times, we need to ask him for strength. In very practical terms of life, faith, hope, and love, it should affect our prayer life. It should draw us closer to him to go before the throne of God. We should go to him with everything. It should affect our attitudes as we turn away from worries, fears, anger, and bitterness and let the brilliance of Christ, attitudes, Christ, kingdom that is coming to penetrate us, to transform us by love, that warm affection, that love that is expected among us as family members under one father. 
We need to pray for one another. We need to provide for one another. We need to encourage and correct one another. That's part of our duty as believers, as members of one family. So don't shy away from the personal relationship that marks a life of love in everything that we do. And then the goal of the book of Hebrews is the maturity as us as Christians. Like unbelievers, we who have never experienced that liberating grace of God, immature believers can fall prey to a set of religious and rigid do's and don'ts of a legalistic religion. They can find themselves crawling back to that old set of rules that were only intended to point us to Christ, not to be a supplement for Christ. We can be confused by the shadow of reality and find ourselves forsaking the freedom of our grace that characterizes a mature believer in Christ. Never forget that we're adopted children of God. We're freed from the bondage of fear, as Romans 8.15 tells us. We are not servants within God's household, but joint heirs with Christ. We're brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ, a holy standing before God, Romans 8.17. And we have been given the spirit of liberty, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, so it sums it up. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in the slavery to the law. Every day in this newfound freedom, we must resubmit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. This way, we will avoid the error of license. And license is feeling that we can indulge in sin and then assume on God's grace to forgive us. Yes, he will, but we shouldn't presume on that. It'll avoid us from the traps and the errors of legalism, following rigid rules and rather than serving God from a genuine heart out of a life of love and gratitude. For Hebrews to penetrate our hearts, to transform our hearts and our lives, we need to be men and women marked by God's liberty rather than by rigidity. Growing out of that old priesthood of its rites and rituals and growing more and more like our eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. So as we conclude the book of Hebrews with its theme, the superiority of Christ, with its message, the practicality of Christianity, and with its goal, the maturity of us as believers. Let us take the truths that we've learned these 25 weeks and apply them, make sure they've taken roots in our heart in our lives, that we can live a manner that's pleasing to God in all things. Now, next week, we will have our special Outreach Mission Sunday with Jeff and Candy from the Gospel Mission Food Pantry. And then we'll have some special music and um, possibly a couple videos. And then following that, we're going to start a series in the book of Philippians. It's an excellent way to kick off the month of Thanksgiving where we're focused on joy. And we'll take a break over the Advent and Christmas season during December. And we're going to continue our messages from last year about the Christmas characters. And then we'll continue with the letter of Philippians in 2024 so we can begin the year with joy. So that's what's upcoming over the next couple of months. But for next week, let's prepare our hearts to be ministered by Jeff and Candy as they share a little more with the, about the Gospel Mission Food Pantry that we've been so intricately involved in. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. 
We thank you for your love, your goodness, your mercy to us. We thank you as we wrap up this book of Hebrews, the lessons that we learned in it, Father, that you are Jesus Christ is superior in his person and his work above everything and everyone, and that we're to take what we've learned here and apply it to our lives, Father, knowing that we can come boldly before your throne, as Hebrews tells us, completely pure and holy, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank you. We praise you. We give you honor and glory that you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.